Hello, and welcome to the Westside Church's special podcast. So it is really a pleasure to get to be with you guys, and I invite you to take your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 is where we're going to get started in just a second, looking at the life of Titus. Before we get to that text, I want you to think for a minute about some time that you've gone camping or just been out uh, in God's creation. For the last six years living in Atlanta, I've been able to participate in a men's camping trip. And we've done most of the things you would expect, right? We've hiked to waterfalls or to the tops of mountains. But the one that no one forgets is what's called Jack's River Falls. And it's seven miles each way, but it's 21 river crossings in that seven miles. I've never done a hike like this in my life. Some of the river crossings are easy. They're just like to your knee and you just try not to slip. Some of the river crossings are up to your chest and we have to hold our backpacks over our heads and sometimes we have to take the little 10-year-old's backpack and just tell him, you just swim across and we'll carry both backpacks. And some of you are going, okay, this guy has brain damage. (laughs) But I love it. I love being out in God's creation, but most of all, Man, I love watching these middle school and high school guys help each other out when the going gets tough. When the trail is a little bit more difficult, when thunderstorms interrupt our plans, seeing them kind of conquer these adventures and not just survive the camping trip, but really enjoy it and thrive. Seeing them come through this with both a good attitude and a joyful spirit Man, they are finishing strong. And I am glad this morning to look at the life of Titus and some other Bible heroes who show us what it really looks like in our walk with God to be able to finish strong. So we'll make this pretty straightforward this morning or afternoon. We're going to look at Titus here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and think about how he finishes strong, not just on some camping trip, but really in the good works that he sets out to accomplish. And then we'll look a little bit closer at Joseph, because Joseph wasn't just a guy doing good works, but he was doing good works in some really hard times and up against some very significant challenges. And yet he finishes strong. And then we'll try to wrap it all together in, most importantly, in our Christian race with Paul. So do you have your Bibles there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? I want you to look down at verse 6 with me and think about Titus and his good works. Verse 6 says, We urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Put your, put your brains on. What do we study about in Bible class when we study 2 Corinthians? Hey, they're pulling together a collection, right? For needy saints. And Titus is this young evangelist. He's like, what a great thing to do. We're going to send some funds down to these Christians in need. I want to be a part of that. And it seems that for whatever reason, there's been some interruption. And so in verse 6, Paul is telling Titus, hey, you were so interested in getting started with this. We are now urging you that you to complete this gracious work. Something that somebody hasn't earned. They don't deserve it. You're just doing it out of the kindness, the goodness of your heart. And I want you to complete what you've started. What's special about this chapter is what's said in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. 
For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Right? You just read verse 6 and it's almost like mom and dad saying, have you done your homework? Have you done your homework? Have you done your homework? And finally you just sit down and do it. That's not Titus. When they urge Titus to get involved, he says in verse 16 and verse 17, Titus has been like, well, it's about time. I've been waiting on you. Let's do this. He has earnestness in his heart. And Paul specifically says, God has stirred that up in him to finish what they've started. Look at verse 18. So they sent Titus. We have sent him along with him, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Not only this, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our readiness. So Titus isn't just the guy that Paul thinks, hey, you need to be part of this. The churches say, hey, we trust this young man. In fact, we don't just trust him like in his interest in his things of the gospel, but we even trust him financially to carry these things. And it seems like whoever this famous person is in verse 18 and verse 19, it seems that that person trusts this young man enough to say, you know, a lot of these young guys would cause me to pull my hair out, but not Titus. Titus isn't going to give us any trouble. Titus isn't going to disrupt things as we take this, uh, this financial gift back down to the saints in Judea. He fits in. He handles himself with dignity, even among, quote unquote, these men of fame for their faith. Guys, I am impressed with Titus in this text. Come down to verse 22. We've sent them with our brother whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love for our reason for boasting about you. This is just a guy who finishes what's he, what he starts. And he does it with an earnestness because he sees the importance of showing grace, the importance of being a blessing to others. Now, that's pretty good that he just finishes what he starts. But take your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And let's think about what the New Testament shows us about this man as we kind of round out our perception of his character. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul gives Titus what I consider to be a very challenging assignment. Here in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. I think Titus rises to this challenge, just like those guys on our river crossings, you know, men's camping trip. They rise to this challenge. Verse 5 says that I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. I want you to know right now that that is not going to be an easy job. Think about this image of Crete for a moment. It's not like Titus thinks, oh great, Paul gave me a beach vacation on this great island in the Mediterranean. Crete is no easy place to go, not spiritually as we learn from this chapter, but not even geographically. Some of the mountains on Crete are over 8,000 feet high. The island itself is 160 miles east to west. 
Some parts of the island are 20, excuse me, 37 miles wide, others as narrow as seven and a half miles wide. The total surface area, 3,260 square miles. Yeah, Titus, you can just knock that out by yourself. How would you like that assignment? When Paul sends Titus here, it's because this is a young man that knows how to do a good work and knows how to finish strong, even when things get challenging. He is definitely in a challenging place, traveling from city to city across the island. But more than just a challenging place, this is no easy job. Look at verse 5 again. What was this job he had to do? He is assigned to appoint elders in every city. It is hard enough to appoint elders one time in a good place with good men who know the Bible. What does Titus chapter 1 tell us about the people on this island? Verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I'm thinking that Titus's options of people to choose from for elders was rather narrow. And even if there were good qualified men in those churches, which of course there would have been, how about getting all of the rest of the lazy beast and liars on board with submitting to those newly appointed elderships? That's a big job, no matter how you measure it. And then you look at chapter 2, and everybody loves to talk about chapter 2. We look at the end of chapter 2, at verse 4 and verse 5, and we see this beautiful connection between the older women and the younger women. And the older women are like, oh, that's so right. These relationships are great. I just want this younger woman to mentor. Oh, but not her. Oh, man, have you seen what she does with her kids? And the younger women are like, oh, I just need this older lady to come and to help me and direct me. And they're like, oh, but not her. I don't think I could do things the way she does. It's not always so easy to build those intergenerational relationships, but they are critical in a New Testament church. And so, yes, he needs to come in. He needs to go all across this island. He needs to point elders, but he needs to create some bridges between the young and the old on the island of Crete because they both need each other. And I would just look at that list and you can see there's going to be one more, right? I would look at that list and to me, that's enough. But what if you're on the clock? What if you've got to do all of this and you're getting ready for company? Look at the end of Titus. Look at chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, he goes ahead and tells us in verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, then make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Hey, Titus, I need you to travel all over the island. I need you to appoint elders. I need you to help these intergenerational relationships and go ahead and get your guest bedroom ready because company is coming. And they need your help in sending them on their way. Titus is incredible. This guy, I don't think got to sleep much, but he puts forth tremendous effort in this kind of good work because he wants to finish strong. So yes, he finishes what he starts with the collection for the saints. And yes, he puts great effort here, but look in the book of Titus one more place. At chapter two, verse six, and chapter two, verse seven, not only does he do this, but he gives an impressive amount of attention 
to his moral character in the process. Verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Guys, you notice that the verse for the young ladies, there's like a whole bunch of different things that he says, but for the men, he boils it down. Just turn your brain on. Like, can I just get you to, hey, Titus, tell the young men, turn their brain on. Get them to be sensible, right? And so when he says that to Titus, he then says, and here's how you're going to have to do that, Titus. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. With purity in doctrine and dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent would be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Paul is not setting an impossible goal for Titus. Paul already knows Titus well enough that he's going to hit that mark. He's going to be exemplary, not just in the effort he puts forth, but in his character. How could Paul know that? Well, let me cheat. Go back to 2 Corinthians again. We were in chapter 8. If you take your Bibles back to 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 7 for a moment. I want you to see that Paul knows this about Titus because Titus is actually the kind of guy that can inspire and encourage Paul when Paul is having a bad day. We talked about a little bit at breakfast this morning that we don't often think about Paul having a bad day. He just goes and conquers and baptizes, right? No, Paul had hard times. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7 in verse 5. When we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. So that I rejoiced even more. What is he saying here? Guess what? Crete's not the first hard place Titus has had to work. Titus got the challenging job of going to Corinth. A place with divisions, a place with arrogance, a place of puffed up idolatry. And Paul says, hey, I need you to go and I need you to get a read for the room. I need you to find out what's really going on in that church. And I need you to come back and Titus, give it to me straight. Tell me what's really happening there. Titus is not the guy you send for a naive report that says, oh, everything's fine. Titus comes back and says, Paul, this is where things stand. But you need to know, they have a zeal for you. They have a longing for you. He's able to come back and give an accurate report to Paul so that he is comforted according to verse 6. He's able to fill Paul back up. And I have a handful of friends that inspire me in the same way. People who I just see the heart of Titus in them. I see the heart of Christ in them. And to spend time with them builds me back up. And I hope as you reflect on Titus... That he's the kind of guy that fills you up and says, yes, let's do this. Let's move forward. Let's take on this next good work. So I want to just define finishing strong this morning or afternoon again, whatever, <laughs> the way Titus does. It's completing what I start. We saw that in 8 verse 6. With our very best effort. We see that all through the epistle to Titus. But with my highest character. 
Because there are plenty of people that will complete what they start with their best effort and they will do it in the most selfish, prideful, and arrogant way. And it's all about me, 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 and my payday. That's not finishing strong. And there are people that will finish what they start and they'll have a very good character. They're not going to lie or cheat or steal, but they're so lukewarm. You're like, give me a little effort, drink a Mountain Dew, all right? Titus does all three. And that's what we want to be. We want to be servants of our heavenly King who complete what we start with our best effort and our highest character. I love the way my preaching buddy, Jim Deason, says this. He says, plenty of young people have initiative. They see a need and they want to jump up and meet it. But we need young people with finitive. And Titus has that. He actually knows how to finish strong. So what do I believe? I believe next time mom and dad are talking to you about that homework and you're thinking, I don't really have to answer the last three questions. I already have a B in this class. I'm going to just coast on this one. That you need to finish strong. You need to finish what you've started well. Or the next time you're out there and you're mowing the grass and it's like five million degrees like it is this weekend and you're thinking, I can't do this. Listen, I'm not encouraging heat stroke, but get a Gatorade and then get back out there and finish. And don't just finish where you kind of left this little spot and you missed that little spot and you saw it, but you didn't turn back. Finish well. Finish strong. That's what Titus would do. So I really believe in finishing strong. And you should too. But you need to know, sometimes it's going to be easier said than done. Sometimes the challenges to actually finishing well are more immense obstacles than we could have ever imagined. So I need to take you to the life of Joseph if you want to be flipping your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 39. But before I read about Joseph, I need to give you a little bit of an illustration. Go on to Genesis 39. As you're doing that, imagine that you got the privilege of playing in the Super Bowl. You know that the fans have paid tremendously, even for the seats at the top. And you know, as you get ready to walk out onto the 50-yard line, that there are literally hundreds of millions of people around the world watching this game. And in that moment, what you might do is step out onto the field and freeze up. What if I fumble? What if I forget the plays? What if nobody likes me? What if I mess up? What if I mess up on national television? What if I ruin this for all of my teammates? And you can start what-ifing yourself into totally being paralyzed. And so people study this. They say, what is the difference between the athlete that steps onto the field and just crumbles and the one that steps on the field and says, this is my moment. I'm going to shine. I've prepared for this my whole life. They call it a challenge state. Top athletes enter a challenge state, not a threat state. And a challenge state reflects a positive mental approach to these pressure situations where you concentrate, make decisions, take control over your thoughts and emotions. That's Joseph. Joseph doesn't always have it easy. 
But instead of saying, oh, here I am in Egypt and the whole world is ending and life is over and I might as well just be like the... No. He says, this is the time that my decisions are critical. And this is the time that I'm not going to let my fears get the best of me. This is the time to rise up and to finish strong. So let's talk about Joseph in hard times for a moment. Look at chapter 39 and verse 9. Genesis chapter 39 and verse 9. If you have ever done a study on personal sexual purity from Genesis 39, then of course you've noticed this verse and you've seen that Joseph speaks about two different authority figures. He says in verse 9, There is no one greater in this house than I. He has withheld nothing from me except for you. He thinks about his relationship to Potiphar. But he goes on in verse 9 and says, Because you are his wife, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? And he thinks about the Father. Now, I love all those sermons. I appreciate all those sermons. But I need you to see something extra in this verse. When the pressure becomes really intense for Joseph, his focus on God's approval is not just because God's in charge, but it's because of the entire trajectory of his life. And turning to her bed is the opposite of the direction he's trying to go. And young people, the trajectory of your life right now, pretty great. And all the speakers that are here this weekend, we're trying to take that and just kick it up another 15 degrees and keep you excelling towards the Lord. And what happens for Joseph here is that when the pressure gets put on, he is very, very focused on continuing to move towards God. So I got to share my embarrassing story, embarrassing in a good way. Andrew was six weeks old, and I had agreed to go to an interview with a church in Kentucky. I hung up the phone when he was three weeks old, and Tracy said, did you just agree to travel in three weeks? He's like, yeah, we, we got to do this. I was nervous. It was a wonderful opportunity. It was going to allow us to be closer to my parents and to her parents. It was going to be a really good place to begin our life as a family of three instead of a family of two. And I talked to dad Sunday morning. I said, yeah, I'm nervous. He said, son, listen, when you get there, the only one that has to be happy with your sermon is God. Not the elders at that church, not the members of that church, just the Lord. And I still remember standing in the back, kind of where your table is, just standing in the back, of a very large auditorium and thinking, there's only one who I need to please right now. And I am so blessed to have a dad that would say words like that. And I want to pass that to y'all. When the pressure is on, it doesn't matter what your friends think. It doesn't matter what the strangers think. It doesn't matter what the rest of the church thinks. It matters what God thinks. And that's where Joseph was focused. Secondly, when the pressure gets on, look at verse 21. In verse 21, he faces some painful setbacks, but he's focused on God's providence. In verse 21, he's been thrown into jail, but the Lord was with Joseph and he extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. 
When Joseph faces setback after setback in his life, he doesn't walk up and go, hey, guess what? I'm the most talented person you ever met. And you might as well put the spotlight on me because that's where it belongs. No, when Joseph walks into these new situations and faces these major setbacks, do you realize that he constantly gives the glory and the credit to God? Look, over, look forward just a little bit with me. Look forward in chapter 41, verse 25. Verse four, chapter 41, verse 25. This is his big chance to get out of jail. And he might want to walk in and say to Pharaoh, hey, I'm the most talented guy you ever met and you need me in your administration. No, not Joseph. He says in verse 25, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Look at verse 28. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Look at verse 32. As for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Joseph sees God's hand working through his life. And Joseph sees God's providence caring for him and watching over him. We, of course, remember at the end of his story in chapter 45 and verse 5, he told his brothers, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. What did Titus want to do? Man, Titus wanted to collect those funds and take them down to Jerusalem. And was Titus looking for a pat on the back? No, he was wanting to do this deed of grace to preserve lives. And Joseph is here doing the same thing. He sees that it is God's providence that is at work in his life. And we need to remember that. Now, the third thing is kind of odd. The third thing here is the fact that the story of Joseph reads a little bit like a Broadway play. Maybe you've had a, a fun play at your high school or something like that. And you know that every time there's a major scene change, usually the characters have to run off stage and have some kind of quick costume outfit change. And you can see, oh boy, now he lost his job because he's in all these ragged clothes. Or, Joseph's life story in the book of Genesis reads with the costume changes. Look at this with me for a moment. 37 verse 3. 37 and verse 3. It starts pretty great. Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was his son of his old age. So he made him a varied colored tunic. There's our coat of many colors. And then you come to verse 23. But it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And then we come to chapter 39 and verse 12. And he's in Potiphar's house. And what do we get? Another costume change. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled. He went out. And then 41 verse 14, 41 verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. They hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes. He came to Pharaoh. And then verse 42, chapter 41, verse 42, Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. 
Why is God inspiring Moses to record all of Joseph's costume changes? It's because of this. There will be times that you'll be stripped of things you didn't want to give up. That you'll have advantages taken away. He had his father's favor, but he loses that when he's sent off to Egypt. He had the favor of, of uh, Potiphar. And he had the Pharaoh of the jailer, but that is taken from him. There are many times that our advantages are going to be taken from us. Maybe things are going really well and then you have a major health crisis. Maybe things are going really well, but then someone lies about you like they did jo uh, Joseph here and it ruins your reputation. You have a hard time finding your next job. Maybe you have some great advantages, but they just get taken away. There are lots of things that you're going to lose in your life. Some will be taken by friends and some by enemies. Some will attempt to be taken by our own government. But no matter what is taken, you decide if you're holding on to your faith and your character. And in every one of these chapters, Joseph knows what he will not let go of. And if you want to finish strong, that's what you hold on to. A belief in God, a trust in God, an integrity so that your words and your actions are integrated. That's what integrity means. And if I say that God is my king, then I better be living like God is my king. I'm glad that he keeps what matters most. But then come with me to chapter 40. Uh, let's see, let's go to 45. Come with me to 45 again. We know what happens when his brothers arrive. Verse 42, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes here. He's clearly had a hard time seeing his brothers again. Their interaction here through all these journeys back and forth reveals that. Would you be ready to give them a second chance? I mean, sometimes we say, okay, I, I want to be forgiving and I want to be gracious and I want to give people a second chance. And so like Potiphar's wife lied about me, but I gave him a second chance in the jail. And I made some new friends and my new friends got out and they were going to tell Pharaoh all about me, but they completely forgot about me. Okay, I've been stung twice. And then you try to rest at night, but you think, you know, it wasn't really just her and it wasn't really just my buddies from jail. This is the way my whole life has been because my own brothers betrayed me. And I tell you what, I'm done. No more gracious good works for me. I'm looking out for number one. I'm taking care of myself. And what happens is that betrayal, do you know this one? Betrayal becomes bitterness. And it happens in churches. Because we say, hey, hey, I need you to help out. I need you to teach the third grade class next quarter here at the church building. You go, oh yeah, yeah, I'm really good with third graders. And they call you back the next day and they say, oh, you know what, actually, um, the four-year-old teacher can't come in. We need you to step down from third grade to four-year-olds. And you go, whoa, do they even know what a toilet is? Like, what are we doing here? How am I going to teach the four-year-olds? And you feel a little bit like it was a bait and switch. Or you ask somebody to help you and you come and you sit down and you just pour your heart out. And then the things you were asking about help with becomes the church gossip that you overhear. 
in the hallways. And you think, wait, but these are Christians. It wasn't going to be Christians that stabbed me in the back. It wasn't going to be Christians that let me down. And that betrayal becomes, don't ever ask me to teach again. Don't ever ask me to lock up the building again. Don't ever ask me to be a deacon again. That's the last time I try to shepherd these sheep. Betrayal becomes bitterness. And in the face of challenges, with higher highs, but much lower lows than you and I are ever likely to experience, he doesn't become bitter. That's wonderful. That's a lesson for all of us. And we see it in chapter 41. In chapter 41, when these sons are born to Joseph, we see in verse 51, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all of my trouble, all of my father's household. He named the second Ephraim. He said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He still knows that no matter how many times he's been betrayed by people, God has never let him down. God has never betrayed him. And there's no reason to turn his back on the Lord. I love the gratitude that Joseph demonstrates. So guys, I believe in finishing strong like Titus. And I believe in finishing strong like Joseph. But the most important way we finish strong is in our faith. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, and I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What is Paul saying about our race of faith? I think he knows what real success is. Real success is like we saying, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant from our Lord. Real success for him is not about the, 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 you know, the cars that he drives or the house that he owns or the number of people that pat him on the back. Real success is having the approval of our Heavenly Father. And to get there, it takes some things, right? It takes self-control. To know that I'm going to stay in the straight and narrow way. I'm not following Satan and these temptations into the broad way that leads to destruction. And it takes having some aim, like a boxer planning his next punch. I'm planning my next move. This is who I'm going to serve. This is how I'm going to use my talents. This is what I intend to accomplish when I'm sent out somewhere like Crete. And then discipline, right? I want you to think about like being in the gym, the discipline to exercise and grow. He's growing. And through all of it, the adults already see it. He's humble. Because you can, you can run to win and have self-control and box with great aim and work out and go, that's right, I'm, I'm awesome. But Paul knows only by the grace of God will we finish our race and receive a crown of life. 
So I'm begging you, when you think about finishing strong in good works or in hard time, that you decide that where I'm most going to finish strong is in my walk with the Lord. Because we don't want to be the seed that lands on the rocky soil and never gets any roots. Didn't Jason do a great job last night of getting our roots deeper in the Word? We want to have real roots so that we produce real fruit with all that we have been given. The Hebrews writer tells us we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we finish strong, we are pleasing to God. And when we finish strong, we are a life-changing blessing to others. And when we finish strong, we don't have regrets hanging over us. Instead, we're satisfied with our run. So I'll leave you this quote and I'm done. Nancy Tumlinson is a sister down in Houston. And she told me about 20 years ago, you're going to be tired at the end of every day. And the only question is, will it be from doing the right things? I want you guys to keep on doing the hard things, the right things, the godly things, so that you will finish strong. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Westside Church of Christ podcast. For more information about Westside, you can connect with us through our website, justchristians.com, and our Facebook page. Our music is from Upbeat.io. That's Upbeat with two P's, U-P-P-B-E-A-T, where creators can get free music. Please share our podcast with others, and we look forward to seeing you again.